Section 82 of Mark Twain, A Biography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography, by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 186, The Bell of New York. Those were feverish weeks of waiting, with days of alternate depression and exaltation as the pendulum swung to and fro between hope and despair. By daylight Clemens tried to keep himself strenuously busy. Evenings and nights he plunged into social activities, dinners, amusements, suppers, balls, and the like. He was besieged with invitations, sought for by the gayest and the greatest. Jamie Dodge conferred upon him the appropriate title, The Bell of New York. In his letters home he describes in detail many of the festivities and the wildness with which he has flung himself into them, dilating on his splendid renewal of health, his absolute immunity from fatigue. He attributes this to his indifference to diet and regularities of meals and sleep, but we may guess that it was due to a reaction from having shifted his burden to stronger financial shoulders. Henry Rogers had taken his load upon him. It rests me, Rogers said, to experiment with the affairs of a friend when I am tired of my own. You enjoy yourself. Let me work at the puzzle a little. And Clemens, though his conscience pricked him, obeyed, as was his habit at such times. To Mrs. Clemens in Paris now, at the Hotel Brighton, he wrote, He is not common clay, but fine fine and delicate. I did hate to burden his good heart and overworked head, but he took hold with avidity and said it was no burden to work for his friends, but a pleasure. When I arrived in September, Lord, how black the prospect was, and how desperate, how incurably desperate! Webster and company had to have a small sum of money or go under at once. I flew to Hartford, to my friends, but they were not moved, not strongly interested, and I was ashamed that I went. It was from Mr. Rogers, a stranger, that I got the money and was by it saved, and then while still a stranger, he set himself the task of saving my financial life without putting upon me, in his native delicacy, any sense that I was the recipient of a charity, a benevolence. He gave time to me, time which could not be bought by any man at one hundred thousand dollars a month, no nor for three times the money. He adds that a friend has just offered to Webster and Company a book that arraigns the Standard Oil magnates individual by individual. I wanted to say the only man I care for in the world, the only man I would give a damn for, the only man who is lavishing his sweat and blood to save me and mine from starvation is a standard oil magnate. If you know me, you know whether I want the book or not. But I didn't say that. I said 
I didn't want any book. I wanted to get out of this publishing business and out of all business, and was here for that purpose and would accomplish it if I could. He tells how he played billiards with Rogers, tirelessly as always, until the millionaire had looked at him helplessly and asked, Don't you ever get tired? And he answered, I don't know what it is to get tired. I, I wish I did. He wrote of going with Mr. Rogers to the Madison Square Garden to see an exhibition of boxing given by the then splendid star of pugilism, James J. Corbett. Dr. Rice accompanied him, and painters Robert Reed and Edward Simmons from the players. They had five seats in a box, and Stanford White came along presently and took Clemens into the champion's dressing-room. Corbett has a fine face, and is modest and diffident, besides being the most perfectly and beautifully constructed human animal in the world. I said, you have whipped Mitchell, and maybe you will whip Jackson in June, but you are not done then. You will have to tackle me. He answered so gravely that one might easily have thought him in earnest, No, I am not going to meet you in the ring. It is not fair or right to require it. You might chance to knock me out by no merit of your own, but by a purely accidental blow, and then my reputation would be gone, and you would have a double one. You have got fame enough, and you ought not to want to take mine away from me. Corbett was for a long time a clerk in the Nevada Bank in San Francisco. There were lots of little boxing matches to entertain the crowd. Then at last Corbett appeared in the ring, and the eight thousand people present went mad with enthusiasm. My two artists went mad about his form. They said they had never seen anything that came reasonably near equaling its perfection except Greek statues, and they didn't surpass it. Corbett boxed three rounds with the middleweight Australian champion. Oh, beautiful to see. Then the show was over, and we struggled out through a perfect mash of humanity. When we reached the street, I found I had left my arctics in the box. I had to have them, so Simmons said he would go back and get them, and I didn't dissuade him. I wouldn't see how he was going to make his way a single yard into that solid incoming wave of people, yet he must plow through it full fifty yards. He was back with the shoes in three minutes. How do you reckon he accomplished that miracle? By saying, Way, gentlemen, please coming to fetch Mr. Corbett's overshoes. The word flew from mouth to mouth, the Red Sea divided, and Simmons walked comfortably through and back dry-shod. 
This is Fire Escape Simmons, the inveterate talker, you know. Exit, in case of Simmons. I had an engagement at a beautiful dwelling close to the players for 10.30. I was there by 10.45. Thirty cultivated and very musical ladies and gentlemen present, all of them acquaintances, and many of them personal friends of mine. That wonderful Hungarian band was there. They charge five hundred dollars for an evening. Conversation and band until midnight. Then a bite of supper. Then the company was compactly grouped before me, and I told them about Dr. B. E. Martin and the etchings, and followed it with the Scotch-Irish christening. My, but the Martin is a darling story. Next, the head tenor from the opera sang half a dozen great songs that set the company wild, yes, mad with delight, that nobly handsome young Damrosch accompanying on the piano. Just a little pause, then the band burst out into an explosion of weird and tremendous dance music. A Hungarian celebrity and his wife took the floor. I followed. I couldn't help it. The others drifted in one by one, and it was on Teora over again. By half-past four, I had danced all those people down, and yet was not tired, merely breathless. I was in bed at five, and asleep in ten minutes, up at nine, and presently at work on this letter to you. I think I wrote until two or half-past. Then I walked leisurely out to Mr. Rogers, it is called three miles, but is short of it, arriving at three-thirty. But he was out to return at five-thirty. So I didn't stay, but dropped over and chatted with Howells until five. Two Mark Twain anecdotes are remembered of that winter at the players. Just before Christmas, a member named Scott said one day, Mr. Clemens, you have an extra overcoat hanging in the coat-room. I've got to attend my uncle's funeral, and it's raining very hard. I'd like to wear it. The coat was an old one, in the pockets of which Clemens kept a melancholy assortment of pipes, soiled handkerchiefs, neckties, letters, and what not. Scott, he said, if you won't lose anything out of the pockets of that coat, you may wear it. An hour or two later Clemens found a notice in his mailbox that a package for him was in the office. He called for it and found a neat bundle which somehow had a Christmas look. He carried it up to the reading-room with a showy air. "'Now, boys,' he said, "'you may make all the fun of Christmas you like, but it's pretty nice, after all, to be remembered.' They gathered around, and he undid the package. It was filled with the pipes, soiled handkerchiefs, and other articles from the old overcoat. Scott had taken special precautions against losing them. 
Mark Twain regarded them a moment in silence, then he drawled, Well, damn Scott, I hope his uncle's funeral will be a failure. The second anecdote concerns the player egg cups. They easily hold two eggs, but not three. One morning a new waiter came to take the breakfast order. Clemens said, Boy, put three soft eggs in that cup for me. By and by the waiter returned, bringing the breakfast. Clemens looked at the egg portion and asked, Boy, uh, what was my order? Th three soft eggs broken in the cup, Mr. Clemens. And you've filled that order, have you? Yes, Mr. Clemens. Boy, you are trifling with the truth. I've been trying all winter to get three eggs into that cup. In one letter he tells of a dinner with his old Comstock friend John McKay, a dinner without any frills, just soup and raw oysters and corned beef and cabbage, such as they had reveled in sometimes in prosperous moments thirty years before. The guests were old gray Pacific coasters, he said, whom I knew when they were young and not gray. The talk was of the days when we went gypsying a long time ago, thirty years. Indeed, it was a talk of the dead, mainly that, and of how they looked and the harem-scarum things they did and said, for there were no cares in that life, no aches and pains, and not time enough in the day and three-fourths of the night to work off one's surplus vigor and energy. Of the midnight highway robbery joke played upon me with revolvers at my head on the wind-swept and desolate Gold Hill Divide, no witness was left but me, the victim. Those old fools last night laughed till they cried over the particulars of that old forgotten crime. In still another letter he told of a very wonderful entertainment at Robert Ride's studio. There were present, he says, Cooklin, Richard Harding Davis, Harrison, the great outdoor painter, William H. Chase, the artist, Bettini, inventor of the new phonograph, Nikola Tesla, the world-wide illustrious electrician. See article about him in January or February century. John Drew, actor. James Barnes, a marvelous mimic. My, you should see him. Smedley, the artist. Zorn, the artist. Zogbaum, the artist. Reinhardt, the artist. Metcalf, the artist. Ancona, head tenor at the opera. Oh, and a great lot of others. Everybody there had done something and was, in his way, famous. Somebody welcomed Coquelin in a nice little French speech. John Drew did the like for me in English, and then the fun began. Coquelin did some excellent French monologues, one of them an ungrammatical Englishman telling a colorless historiette in French. 
It nearly killed the fifteen or twenty people who understood it. I told a yarn, and Kona sang half a dozen songs. Barnes did his darling imitations, handing Davis sang The Hanging of Danny Deaver, which was, of course, good, but he followed it with that most fascinating, for what reason I don't know, of all Kipling's poems, On the Road to Mandalay, sang it tenderly, and it searched me deeper and charmed me more than the diver. Young Garrett Smith played some ravishing dance music, and we all danced about an hour. There couldn't be a pleasanter night than that one was. Some of those people complained of fatigue, but I don't seem to know what the sense of fatigue is. In his reprieve he was like some wild thing that had regained liberty. He refers to Susie's recent illness and to Mrs. Clemens' own poor state of health. Dear, dear Susie, my strength reproaches me when I think of her and you. It is an unspeakable pity that you should be without any one to go about with the girls, and it troubles me and grieves me and makes me curse and swear. But you see, dear heart, I've got to stick right where I am till I find out whether we are rich or whether the poorest person we are acquainted with in anybody's kitchen is better off than we are. I stand on the land end of a springboard with the family clustered on the other end. If I take my foot, he realized his hopes to her as a vessel trying to make port. Once he wrote, The ship is in sight now. When the anchor is down, then I shall say, Farewell, a long farewell to business. I will never touch it again. I will live in literature. I will wallow in it, revel in it. I will swim in ink. Joan of Arc. But all this is premature. The anchor is not down yet. Sometimes he sent her impulsive cables calculating to sustain hope. Mrs. Clemens, writing to her sister in January, said, Mr. Clemens now for ten days has been hourly expecting to send me word that Page had signed the new contract, but as yet no dispatch comes. On the fifth of this month I received a cable, expect good news in ten days. On the fifteenth I receive a cable, look out for good news. On the nineteenth a cable, nearing success. It appealed to her sense of humor even in these dark days. She added, they make me laugh, for they are so like my beloved colonel. Mr. Rogers had agreed that he would bring Page to rational terms, and with Clemens made a trip to Chicago. All agreed now that the machine promised a certain fortune as soon as a contract acceptable to everybody could be concluded, Page and his lawyer being the last to dally and dicker as to terms. Finally a telegram came from Chicago saying that Page had agreed to terms. 
on that day clemens wrote in his notebook this is a great date in my history yesterday we were paupers with but three months rations of cash left and a hundred and sixty thousand dollars in debt my wife and i but this telegram makes us wealthy but it was not until a fortnight later that page did actually sign this was on the first of february ninety four and clemens that night cabled to paris so that mrs clemens would have it on her breakfast plate the morning of their anniversary wedding news our ship is safe in port i sail the moment rogers can spare me so this painted bubble this thing of emptiness had become as substance again the grand hope he was as concerned with it as if it had been an actual gold mine with ore and bullion piled in heaps that shadow that farce that nightmare one longs to go back through the years and face him to the light and arouse him to the vast sham of it all end of chapter one hundred and eighty six the bell of new york read by john greenman